Welcome to Forging Plowshares, a community dedicated to cultivating the peaceful kingdom of God. We hope this part of our ongoing conversation stimulates your mind and challenges your heart about what it means to be a follower of Jesus. Please stay tuned at the end of the podcast for a short message about our ministry. Matthew 5:17. Do not think that I came to abolish the law or the prophets. I did not come to abolish, but to fulfill. And so the key question here, and I think it is answered in chapter 5, is what does it mean that Jesus came to fulfill the law? And the New Testament converges then on the, the issue, the predicament, the human predicament, really the war within and the war without, in what it does with the law. And it is not that Jesus satisfies the law, which was the understanding of uh, Anselm of Canterbury. It's not that Jesus affirms and maintains the law or confirms the eternal purposes of the law. Jesus introduces something new, and that's what's happening in chapter 5. This brings us then to the contention about what it means in 5.17 that Jesus came to fulfill the law. Some would argue that Jesus is the correct interpreter you know, kind of putting the final exclamation point on the commandments and in some way forever confirming the validity of the law. And isn't this, you know, they would argue what it means that he fulfilled it and did not abolish it. After all, he does go on to say here that every jot and tittle, not the smallest letter and stroke is what this means, that it all must be preserved. He says it all has to be accomplished. And this accomplishment will mark those in chapter 5, what he's talking about, those who enter the kingdom. And of course, Jesus begins, Matthew, as he begins his ministry, proclaiming the kingdom of God. I think it is clear in Matthew 5, the law is not fulfilled and its purpose is not accomplished apart from the person and the teaching of Christ who does not simply confirm the law but Christ brings something new and this new order and new kingdom is what Jesus is describing throughout chapter 5 you know in the Beatitudes in this whole section actually in chapter 5 that this is the kingdom and these are the people that was promised by and anticipated in the law. But it was not contained in the law. The law of love, we might say, or Jesus' description here in chapter 5 of the new ethic order, it is not a restatement of the Mosaic law. But it is an abrogation, a deepening, a redirection, and even a contradiction of the law, all of which is aimed at Jesus and the new kingdom which he's ushering in. And maybe the key point, the telling point in chapter 5, look down at verse 21. 
And this is kind of the final verse here in this thought. For I say to you that unless your righteousness surpasses that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will not enter the kingdom of God, the kingdom of heaven. Apparently, those attached, those most attached to law-keeping, like the Pharisees, like the Sadducees, they have not achieved the righteousness for which the law was intended and toward which it pointed. And this indicates that fulfill cannot simply mean that Jesus fulfills the law as in accomplishing what it foretold. Because what's missing in these law keepers is righteousness. And certainly Jesus fulfilled certain predictions and filled out certain typologies. But this verse speaks of fulfilling all righteousness. That is, it's not just that he's fulfilling prophecy, you know, the future telling of the law. He's doing something more. He's ushering in a righteousness which the law could not accomplish and which the harshest advocates of the law, the Pharisees, the Sadducees, they completely miss. So part of the key thing here we have to ask is, what is it they missed? How did they fail and what aspect of the law did they miss? And this then is answered by the answering the question, what is the substance of the righteousness which they did not grasp? Is it that the Jews could not keep the law? You know, this is the way we often tell the story. Oh, and Jesus succeeds, he keeps the law perfectly. You know, he does all that it says. And this is the legal theories of atonement, what are called divine satisfaction or penal substitution. They would say, well, Jesus just fulfills the law and that he keeps it perfectly. And uh, they didn't keep it perfectly. Is that what we're talking about? Or is it the thing that they have missed is Jesus? They're missing, I think, the significance of who Jesus Christ is. It's not simply that the scribes and Pharisees fail to obey their law, and we get this, that their problem is much more serious. Flip over to chapter 23, verse 13. He says, For you shut the kingdom of heaven in people's faces. For you neither enter yourselves nor allow those who would enter to go in. I think this is the most condemning thing Jesus says to this group of people. And in this passage in 23, Jesus lays at their feet, the scribes and Pharisees, in their attitude toward him. And I think that's key, the history of murder. In verse 23, 31, So you testify against yourselves that you are sons of those who murdered the prophets. And of course, they would murder Jesus. They would murder the Messiah. They're going to have him crucified just as their fathers did the prophets. That's what Jesus is saying. Their problem is more serious than a kind of hypocritical showmanship 
or a legalistic failure. That may be part of it, but they have a much more serious problem in their clinging to the retributive system of the law, which seems consequently to promote hypocrisy, but they're going to reject Jesus. They're going to reject and kill the Messiah. And this is what Jesus says in verse 37 of chapter 23. Jerusalem, Jerusalem, who kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to her, how often I wanted to gather your children together. The way a hen gathers her chicks under her wings, and you were unwilling. I wanted to bring you in and call you to myself, but you're unwilling. They have stumbled over Christ, rejecting him. And of course, this is part of what the New Testament says. They've stumbled over the stone of stumbling, which is Jesus Christ. And in so doing, imagining that they were thus upholding the law. That is, in rejecting Jesus, they imagine they're protecting the law and the temple. And so if we imagine their problem was primarily law-keeping, the law, the danger is we commit the same error. And this is in penal substitution, the doctrine of atonement. It is taught that they could not perform the law adequately, and Jesus performs it and thus fulfills it. But what this misses is that the law always pointed beyond itself to Jesus. Just as Jesus is the point of the temple, he's the true temple. Just as he's the point of the sacrifices, he's the true sacrifice. Just as he's the point of the priesthood, he's the true priest. So too he is the point of Torah, of law. The scribes and Pharisees, I guess they were pretty good at understanding and doing the law, as far as that goes. But what they stumbled over was Jesus. They did not stumble over the law. They stumbled over Jesus. They clung to the sign and missed what it signified. They clung to the letter and missed the spirit. But so too modern Christians who imagine that penal substitution or that Jesus fulfilled the law simply by keeping the law. I'm afraid that Jesus' performance of the law, you know, just his law keeping and his bearing the penalty. If we imagine that is his fulfillment of the law, we are doing the same thing that they did. We're missing Jesus. Israel. The law, the temple, all look forward to what they did not contain. A living temple, a peaceable kingdom, a new creation, a new birth, a new form of humanity. You know, all these things that Jesus is proclaiming in chapter 5. As Jesus indicates, the purpose for which he came was to fulfill the law and usher in the righteousness and the kingdom of righteousness. And then, you know, in this section, he goes through, you've heard it said that you shall not murder. But in his kingdom, it's not simply murder, but even anger or murderous anger in 521 is outlawed. 
It is not simply adultery. You know, you've heard it said. And by the way, when he's saying you've heard it said, he's referencing the Old Testament. In the law, you've heard it said you shall not commit adultery. But he says adulterous thoughts even are to be brought under control in 527. He goes on, you know, it's not simply false promises. But the very need for swearing. It's not simply selfishness or revenge that are precluded. And so in the bluntest matter, Jesus challenges the law. He abrogates the law. He sets forth an inherent inadequacy of the law in and of itself. And throughout the passage of Matthew 5, Jesus is making direct reference to the Old Testament law, to the Torah. Exodus 21, 23 to 25. But if there is any further injury, then you shall appoint as a penalty for life, life for life, eye for eye, tooth for tooth, hand for hand, foot for foot, burn for burn, wound for wound, bruise for bruise. And so his summary of what is called the lex talionis you know, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. He's quoting the Old Testament. It's not a mere gloss. It's not an interpretation. It's not an oral tradition. Jesus is referencing the very heart of the law given in Exodus. In verse 38 to 39 of chapter 5. You have heard it said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. But I say to you, do not resist an evil person. But whoever slaps you on your right cheek, turn the other to him also. The law is very specific. And Jesus quite specifically overturns it. The law allows for, it even calls for vengeance. But in the kingdom of God, there is no vengeance. There is no retribution. Jesus references the Mosaic Law some six times in chapter 5. And each time he overturns it. And maybe this is brought out in his sharpest example. In 43, you've heard that it was said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. Now, many claim here that, oh, when he says hate your enemy, this is not the Old Testament. This is, oh, that's oral tradition, or that's a contemporary teaching that added to the Mosaic Law. I think, on the contrary, hate your enemy summarizes a line of teaching in the Old Testament. Hate your enemy summarizes, I think, what it required to be an Israelite. Hate your enemy was an important part of the Mosaic legal order. And you really could not be a faithful Israelite without doing it. And so, yeah, while fellow Israelites were to receive special consideration, certain alien persons were to be hated in Deuteronomy. They're to be obliterated. Deuteronomy 7, 1 to 2. Show no favor. Show no compassion. Show no mercy or love. David says in Psalms 139, Do I not hate those who hate you, O Lord? And do I not loathe those who rise up against you? 
I hate them with the utmost hatred. They have become my enemies. I think it's a clear teaching of the Old Testament. You love your fellow Israelites and you hate your enemies. And we're seeing that carried out today in Israel. We're seeing the outworking of the admonition, hate your enemy. This week in the New Yorker, Daniela Weiss is one of the settlers. Uh, you know, the settler movement, they're moving in, they keep moving into Palestinian territory. And she's been affiliated with the Nakala Settlement Organization. And they're actually creating illegal settlements in the West Bank, illegal outposts. So they just keep encroaching. She has a neighbor who she's also associated with, Bazel Smotrich, I'm not sure how to say his name, who is the extremist minister of finance. And he has said the Palestinian people they do not exist and that a Palestinian communities need to be erased and he lives in the same community where she was mayor and of course since the massacre the terrible massacre of Hamas on October 7th Benjamin Netanyahu's government they've killed 10,000 Palestinians half of whom are children in addition to the deaths in Gaza the settler movement has also been encroaching. They've begun new settlements. And 16 Palestinian communities have been removed from their land. And 175 Palestinians, not in Gaza, but elsewhere, have been killed. And so this was an interview with this woman, head of the settler movement. The interviewer asked her, so rights are not some sort of universal thing that every person has. There's something that you can win or lose. So he asks that question, and she says, yes, that's right. She says, if they accept our sovereignty, they can live here. And of course, what she's arguing is, the Palestinians have no rights. Only Jews have rights. He goes on and says, it just means accepting your sovereign power, not necessarily having rights. She says, right. I'm saying specifically, they are not going to have the right to vote for the Knesset. No, no, no. They have no rights. She says in Israel there's a lot of support for settlements. And this is why there have been right-wing governments for so many years. The world, especially the United States, thinks there is an option for a Palestinian state. And if we continue to build communities, then we block the option for a Palestinian state. And of course that's her goal. We want to close the option for a Palestinian state and the world wants to leave the option open. It's a very simple thing to understand. I think she's right. It's very simple to understand. The interviewer asked her the next question. We saw some horrible images on October 7th of what happened to Israeli children. And now we see some horrible images in Gaza of what is happening to Palestinian children. When you see Palestinian children dying, what's your emotional reaction as a human being? She answers, I go by a very basic human law of nature. My children are prior to the children of the enemy. 
Period. They are first. My children are first. The interviewer says, wait a minute, we're talking about children. I don't know if the law and the law of nature, is that what we need to be looking at here? Yes. I say my children are first. And of course, what she's arguing is, I love Jews, I hate Palestinians, I hate the children of Palestinians, and they should not be here. And clearly this is the argument, not of all Jews, but of some Jews. They would like to see them all obliterated. Like Jews of old, and perhaps like maybe most people, maybe, I don't know, all people. Hatred of the enemy is definitive. You love your fellow citizens and you hate the enemy. And actually the Old Testament provides no basis for not hating the enemy. And this is why Jesus' saying is important. Jesus is not saying, oh, you Pharisees have heard wrong when he says, you have heard it says. He's saying, you have heard it read from the law. Most of them don't own the book of the law, they just hear it read. But I am saying something different. And he does this in verse 22, verse 28, verse 32, verse 34, verse 39, verse 44 of Matthew 5. You've heard it from the Torah, but I'm saying to you something different. And in this instance, you know, you've heard it said that you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemies. But I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you so that you may be sons of your Father who is in heaven. Keeping the law apart from Christ, by definition, is to fall short of the kingdom of God ushered in by Jesus. You cannot keep the law and be a follower of Jesus. Jesus does not question the interpretation of the law given by the scribes and Pharisees. And this is true in many instances. You know, the, the Pharisees point out, one should not normally associate with sinners when Jesus eats with tax collectors and harlots. They wouldn't associate with. One should normally obey the rules. There are definite rules regarding fasting. There are definite rules about working on the Sabbath. This is all according to the law. But what the Pharisees failed to recognize is Jesus as the purpose, as the fulfillment, as the accomplishment of the law. Jesus' purpose was to heal the sick and to save sinners. This is chapter 9, verse 12. It is not those who are healthy who need a physician, but those who are sick. In verse 15, he's the bridegroom, and the attendants of the bridegroom cannot mourn as long as the bridegroom is with them. Yes, he says, I hang out with sinners because I've come to save sinners. No, you should not be fasting and my followers should not be fasting because the bridegroom is present. The Pharisees lack mercy and demand strict adherence to the law and in so doing, they break the spirit of the law. They miss its purpose. And that's just what Jesus says in chapter 12. Or have you not read in the law that on the Sabbath the priest in the temple break the Sabbath and are innocent? But I say to you that something greater than the temple is here. 
But if you had known what this means, I desire compassion and not a sacrifice, you would not have condemned the innocent. Jesus is Lord of the Sabbath. He is greater than the temple. This is what he says in chapter 12, verse 8, verse 6. He's greater than Moses. He's greater than the law. This is what it says throughout the book of Hebrews. All of these, though, the law, the temple, Israel, are indicators of who he is. So Jesus' fulfillment or accomplishing of the law, it's not confirmation of the law. It's not simply even an inward confirmation. Jesus sets up a direct antithesis between his teaching, his kingdom, and his law of love and the Mosaic law. It's not that the Mosaic law is abolished, but its significance is now apprehended through Christ. Just as the temple and the sacrifices, they take on their fulfilled meaning in Jesus as true temple, true atonement. So to the Torah, all of the Mosaic law is significant only in its bearing witness to Christ. It's not significant in and of itself. It's not an end in and of itself. But it remains significant as it points to the new ethic, the new kingdom, and its more fulsome commandments, its holistic fulfillment in Christ. And Jesus says, you know, this is not an ethic for worldly kingdoms such as Israel. No, this is a new kingdom. These worldly kingdoms are grounded in retribution, but the heavenly kingdom that Jesus came announcing, it is described then in these beatitudes. The meek, the peaceful, the loving, those who go the second mile. This marks the righteous nature of this kingdom's citizens. And it's not that these kingdom members accomplish this apart from Christ, but this is what it means that he would save his people from their sins. And so this kingdom ethic, it flows from Jesus, from its founder, creating a new people. And so in this sense, Jesus is the fulfillment of the righteousness of the law. And being incorporated into his kingdom means embracing, he is the eschatological fullness. You know, he's the one toward which this was pointing. He's the cosmic fullness. The law is not accomplished or fulfilled in perfect performance of its strictures. Do not taste, do not touch, but in the appearance of its purpose. And so legal theories of atonement that maintain the law is the means of understanding Jesus, satisfaction theories or penal substitution, they preserve violent notions of God. They allow for human violence. They allow for hating your enemy, as in just war. They allow for eye for an eye, tooth for a tooth. But Jesus doesn't allow for that. These legalistic systems, they keep alive Zionist notions of Israel and of nationalism. And not only the violence of God, but the violence of humanity and violent nationalism are preserved, but also the very cancer afflicting the depths of human interiority. This is the sickness that we suffer from. These things are left unaddressed, that Jesus is addressing in the Beatitudes. But this conception of 
legalism leaves rivalry, jealousy, anger, violence, you know, all the things that are the opposite of the Beatitudes. These things are left in place. And maybe legal theories, such as penal substitution, they serve to aggravate a kind of self-punishing oppression. We imagine, oh, that my conscience is the voice of God. And if God would torture, kill his son, or wipe out the enemies of Israel, no wonder that this violent force is unleashed within my own self-apprehension. The human disease, hatred of the enemy, human violence, exterior or interior, the war rages within and without. And maybe the theory of the cross adds fuel to the fire in this kind of predominant understanding, providing a kind of religious confirmation for the worst forms of evil. You know, we're living in a very dark time when some of the worst actors on the national and world stage are Christians with the promotion of ethnic cleansing in Gaza, the denial of the environmental crisis, the promotion of right-wing racism, the looming crisis really for democracy in the United States. If the scribes and Pharisees can be said to have missed Jesus by clinging to the law, so too legal theories of atonement make the same mistake. They both miss how it is that Jesus will save his people from their sins. Which is, by the way, the meaning of his name. Jesus, or Joshua, derives from the Hebrew meaning of the Lord is salvation. And thus, we miss the fact that Jesus is the salvific point of the law. And the law has no point, no salvation without it. Forging Plowshares is a community dedicated to cultivating the peaceful kingdom by providing in-depth, transformative biblical and theological education and discipleship. If you have found this podcast valuable, please remember to share on social media. If you have questions about what you've heard, or if you'd like to learn more about how you can get involved with Forging Plowshares or even support this ministry financially, please visit our website, forgingplowshares.org.